and good morning. Such a uh, joy to be able to worship together with you this morning and to just, yes, sing um, and pray that God would be magnified in our lives, in our hearts, um, through us. What a gift that is. And I want to just congratulate you men. We made it to sweater vest weather. Um, it's just a glorious day when we get here. Ladies have pumpkin spice latte day. Uh, we have sweater vest day. It's a good day for me. Um, we are uh, studying. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, it's just a, uh, a great joy to see you and love an opportunity to meet you. Um, I'll be down front at the end of our time together and uh, along with a few of our elders and some ladies from our, our women's team. And so if you need prayer, just encouragement, anything like that, we would love um, to, uh, to meet you and to try and do that. Um, um, we are studying the book of Acts, and if you are a guest with us, it's our practice here to just sort of work our way through books of the Bible. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, um, the middle of that text will pick up in verse 11. And one of the beautiful things, there's so many things, this week, I, I, I will confess, and many of you understand this, has been a challenging week for me personally and for our church, and there's just been things that we've been walking through. Um, our student minister is not serving here any longer, and I'm not going to get into the weeds on that, but it just means there's just been some heaviness in my life. And and, and looking and studying Acts chapter 16, God providentially knew that we would be in this text. We started this book many months ago. Some of you are like, yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, we started this book a while back. And in God's providence, this is the text that he would have me studying, um, looking at um, as we walk through a bit of a trial. And it's just a gift from God um, that he's allowed us to do that. And I'm so thankful for this word um, and this text that reminds me of so much of what God is doing. When we are in the midst of trial as we have been this week, one of the things that I know to be true is that the enemy of God is believing that he is taking kingdom and territory from Jesus, either in our hearts or corporately. He is believing and hoping that in some way he can diminish the great work that we have been a part of and that we are doing. And here's the beautiful thing that I was reminded of by a dear friend who came to pray with me this week. I was reminded that through prayer and through the work that we do, that we have an opportunity and we are a part of taking that kingdom and that territory back for Jesus. We will not relinquish that territory to the enemy. And if you're wondering how we go about that as we live our lives together, what does it look like for us to take kingdom territory for Jesus, to, to move and live our lives in such a way that the kingdom of God is growing and expanding? And honestly, if we are not doing that, if that's not a part of our lives, if that's not the work of the church, then they're quite candidly, I'm not sure what we're up to. Because everything about scripture, all of the story that we've been studying through the book of Acts, and as we've talked about, the book of Acts is a sense the story of the beginning of the church, but the entire history of this book is, and the word of this book is, things were broken, things fell deeply into darkness, and God working out his plan of redemption to restore his kingdom here. This is why we so often pray, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, because God's kingdom will one day be perfectly seen by all. And as we pray often, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. And so we get to be a part of that. We are a part of that. And as I think about the trials of this week, and I know that there are other trials that many of you have faced and there'll be trials next week and in years to come. What does it look like? How do we go about taking kingdom territory for Jesus? This is what we're gonna learn, I hope, through the study um, in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 and following. Uh, if you're able, would you stand as I read this text for us out of reverence for God's holy word? So setting sail 
from Trous, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is leading the, a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the, woman, uh, uh, to the women who had gath- come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we once again have been blessed with the opportunity to gather together to study, um, to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you speak now through me? I pray that I would decrease as you increase in this place, Jesus. Um, Would you encourage our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you remind us of the ministry that you have given us and called us to? And remind us that you are with us in that. I pray these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So just to catch you up in case you forgot or weren't with us last weekend on a bit of the setting that is here. Paul and Silas have set out, begun another missionary journey to take the gospel. And they have been set apart uh, by the church. They had this split, Paul and Silas from Barnabas and John Mark, his cousin. They sort of split last week in the ends of chapter 15 into the early uh, verses of 16. And they decide, okay, we're going to uh, go our separate ways and continue on this journey of taking the gospel around the world. So Paul and Silas, as it says, and Luke is with them. That is why in verses 11 and following, there's this plural uh, tense that is used because Luke is the narrator in this story telling us what they are up to, setting sail from Traus onto Samothrace into Neapolis, and from there uh, about an eight days journey up to Philippi. I have a map for you as you have come to learn. I've got maps and uh, this is a little bit of a picture of that journey for them. So you see Traus down there in the bottom corner and they say, up to Samothrace and then up to Neapolis and then they take a journey up to Philippi where they begin this ministry. At the very end of last week's time together, you remember that Paul had received this vision from God to go to Macedonia, which you see there in the corner. This Philippi is in the region of Macedonia. And so Paul's received this vision and a man asks, hey, come and help us. And so they oblige. And so Luke records that they went and they began to go on this journey. In June of 1944, many of you will know that date, on June 6th of 1944, the greatest amphibious military force that has ever been assembled in the history of military might uh, descended on Normandy. And they went to push back against the work of Hitler who had taken rule over Europe. And ultimately that day was the unfolding day that led to his fall. Similarly, but quite in the opposite direction, here we have not the greatest amphibious force to ever land on shore, but we have four faithful men of God who go 
land at a place and make their way to a city and ultimately plant the flag for the kingdom of God in Europe for the first time. That's what we see happening historically in this city. They come to Philippi, four faithful men, not a Jewish city, not a place that was known, but to a city that was a very uh, worldly culture. They come to a city that was known for its military power. This is a city that many of the Roman residents or Roman soldiers were encouraged to retire in. It was the place in the great civil war of Rome where Mark Antony ultimately defeated the opposition. And so we see this culture that is created there. It's a very worldly city and it's a place where, again, God had sent them to establish his kingdom in a new place. As we see how God is at work through Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke, we're going to see the calling that God has put on our lives to push back and take territory for him. Well, we see there again the invasion where they land on uh, Samothrace, sail again to Neapolis and then make their way up to Philippi. And when they make their way to Philippi, this Roman colony, this very worldly city, uh, they meet a woman. This was, as we see them described going out to the river, this was not a Jewish city. One of the things that we can learn about the context when the word says, when they remained in this city on some days, on the Sabbath, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they supposed there would be some people praying. This was not a city like the other cities where Paul had visited. You might remember, we've said this over and over again as we've studied this book. The first thing Paul did when he landed in a new city was to go to the synagogue, to find the people that were God-fears, that had some understanding of the God of the Bible, and he went there to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell them the story of the Messiah. Well, there was no synagogue here because this was not a Jewish city, and so they go outside the gates of the city where, for whatever reason, they had been told, maybe understood in some way culturally, that there would be people praying outside of the city. And so they go to this place, and they find this group of women who are praying. And one of the women is a woman named Lydia. Lydia is from the city of Thyatira, it says of her. She's a seller of purple goods, which is a way of describing, Luke is describing her wealth and the significance of her role. She was someone that was well thought of and had power and again, uh, resources. She had wealth. And it also says though, very uh, important word there, that she was a worshiper of God a worshiper of God. She was what would also in some other places in scripture be referred to as a God-fearer. She had come to know the God of the Bible through the Jewish community that existed there, this small little group of ladies more than likely had shared who God was, but she didn't know Jesus. She didn't know the gospel. She simply had a reverence and an understanding that God was who he said he was, that there was a God, that he was the true God. And so they meet her in this group of women and they begin to speak to them. And notice what it says very clearly about how God worked as the Lord delivers this first victory for them on their missionary journey. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. If we want to understand our role and the opportunity that we have as we take kingdom territory for Jesus, there's three things that we see here. And the very first is the Lord opened her heart. The Lord is the one who did the work first. 
This is sometimes referred to, we talk about God in this way, that he is the first mover. He is the one who comes and pursues us. He is the one who opens up our heart to believe. He opens up our our heart to be even sensitive to the things of God. That in our natural state, and I, I know this about myself, and I think if we're all just sort of process and think about your own condition, the things of God, are you naturally attentive to those things? Are you naturally interested in those things? I can tell you the story of my life is no. In my natural state, I had no interest in those things. God moves first. Consider your own stories. Just think back to how you came to faith. If you're a Christ follower this morning and you worship Jesus, my expectation as I've talked with so many over the years, every time I have a conversation of tell me the story of your faith, it begins with God moving first. God moved. He opened her heart. And as he opens up her heart, he then does something else physically. There's this internal heart opening that we can't really see and you can't really measure whether someone's heart is open. But there's this physical response that it says he gave her ears to hear. Notice again, the Lord opened up her heart to pay attention, to pay attention. Some of you as parents know that you pray often that your children's hearts would be open to pay attention to you to listen, to hear what you have to say, all right? We, we do that so often. But here, God opens up her heart to pay attention. He gives her ears to hear the message that he's already given Paul, that Paul already is on the way to go and to say to her, Paul knows exactly what he's intending to do, but God moves first. I want you to see there's three things involved there. God opening up her heart, God giving her ears to hear, and then Paul speaking Two things that God does, one thing that Paul does. And that's the same responsibility and calling that we can apply to our own lives. As we think about our role in taking territory for Jesus and sharing the gospel, when I say taking territory, establishing the kingdom of God and seeing God do that in individuals' hearts and those individuals doing that in other people's hearts so that his influence and work begins to spread, we all get to be a part of that and we can trust And have confidence and faith that God is doing that and has invited each of us into that role. God opens hearts. God gives ears to hear. And then we speak. Sometimes I fear that we shrink back. And there's a bit of cowardice from speaking. And we think to ourselves, and the reason that I think that we do that is we think to ourselves that we have to be the person that also convinces someone's heart to be open and to convince them to pay attention to us when God's word says that's not the way it works. We trust that God will open the hearts of the, that he intends to open. God will open and give ears to hear to the people that are going to hear the gospel. We simply speak when we are given those opportunities to do so, and we can trust in that. I can tell you, I stand here every Sunday, as you guys have come to know, or at least most Sundays, there are a lot of Sundays, I'm here, and I am in other places in conversations, and if I believed that I had a responsibility to, one, convince you to open up your heart and somehow manipulate your heart to think, okay, I'm going to pay attention to what he has to say, and then I could say, do you know that I could rightfully never sleep and never rest? Because it would be my responsibility to ensure that every heart that ever hears my voice speak is open and their ears are attentive. And I've got to figure out some way to ensure that happens. I couldn't rest. And if I did rest, I'd be falling down on the job. That's not the reality of my job. And that's not the reality of your job. God opens hearts. God gives ears to hear. We simply speak when we are given those opportunities. We speak. Some people shrink back again from speaking and they say, well, 
I'll let my hospitality be the means of communicating my love. I'll show the gospel in the way I care for people. And there is this calling to let them know. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. There are lots of actions that we engage in as Christians that demonstrate our faith, that proclaim the gospel. But let us never forsake the reality that, yes, we live these things out, but we are called to proclaim to speak the message of the gospel, friends. We have that calling on our lives and we have the opportunity. Now, I know the other thing that you're worried about. I don't wanna be weird. You're all worried about being weird, worrying about kind of thinking that somebody's gonna think you're strange. Why has he always gotta talk about Jesus and all those sorts of things? Well, one, let me just say, if I'm gonna be found to be weird about anything, I'd rather be found to be weird about Jesus than anything else in the world. I'm weird about a lot of things. I'm weird about the Dallas Cowboys. I confess that to you, okay? And if I'm gonna be weird, I'm gonna be weird about Jesus too, and more so than anything else. But it doesn't have to be weird. I've told you this a million times. I am a train wreck that for much of my life, wanted to do my own thing, my own way with zero interest in the things of God, not sensitive to who God was, not really caring what God had to say. I wanted my way for my fame, for my glory so that I could have the life that I wanted. And then Jesus interrupted that. And someone proclaimed the gospel to me. My brother shared that I was putting my hopes in the wrong things and that chasing the life that I thought I could, was after was never gonna satisfy me. And he told me the good news of who Jesus is. And God had opened up my heart through conviction and so many other things prior to that. And my ears were attentive to that message. And I believed and my life has never been the same since. Now you can call me weird, but I don't think that's too weird to say. And I don't think that there are many people that as I share my life with you and then do that personally over coffee, over meals, over other situations where I see friends and loved ones and people that I care about struggling after life and trying to make sense of life and trying to figure out how to be the husband or the wife or the son or the, 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 the professional, the, whatever it is in your life. And it, it, it just fi finding no hope and finding some failure and finding inconsistency to be able to say, hey, can I just tell you about what God's done in my life? Would you mind if I just said, hey, let me tell you, I was, I, was, I was on a path not chasing Jesus and Jesus came and interrupted that and it's given me life and it's given me hope. And if I'm gonna be called weird for that, praise be to God, I'll be weird for that. But I don't think that's strange. I think you, each and every one of us is given those opportunities. If we would simply trust that God opens hearts and raises their attentiveness through circumstances, so that when we proclaim, we can just throw the seed, as the parable says, and not be responsible for what soil it falls on. We are responsible for sowing. He does the uh, growing. He is the one who brings the increase. Trust in that. So they do that, and ultimately this woman... Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Her whole family comes to faith in Christ. She's baptized. We can tell that there's such a transformation in her life. She invites them to all come over and stay with her. And it says that she was so convincing. This also alludes to her sort of winsomeness, her power. She was a good salesman. She could sell purple goods. She could also sell you, hey, you're gonna come stay at my house for a while. And, uh, and so that's, the, and it says, I love the way Luke says, she prevailed upon us. I like it when people prevail upon me. I'm letting you, you're gonna let me do this for you. All right, I'll do it. And so this is what happens. Well, as they continue to live this life with Lydia, then they are traversing in and out of Philippi and kind of moving about. Verse 16, it says they're going again to this place of prayer, perhaps out of the city again to pray with Lydia, maybe looking for other men and women who might be there that they could share the gospel with. And they come upon this slave girl who has a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. 
Ultimately, this girl had the ability somehow through this spirit that had possessed her to speak and tell others of their future, to fortune tell. This is what she was able to do. And her owners, she was a slave girl, and so her owners were capitalizing on this so much so that their entire livelihood was built upon what they were doing with this young slave girl. Well, the slave girl is following Paul around and ultimately she's proclaiming, notice what she says, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now you may be, it's a little bit confusing here, like, okay, she's possessed by a demon who says that this is, these men are men of God that are proclaiming the way of salvation. Why is a demon saying that? And why is Paul annoyed with the woman saying that you're doing what, just telling the world, hey, this is what you're doing. Well, this is the reason why. Where Satan can't put a full, just sort of wall up to oppose and turn people away from hearing the gospel What he does is he tries to pervert the gospel. And what was happening here was Satan, through this young slave girl, which the the city understood who this girl was, had sort of known her history more than likely, taking the message of the gospel, the message of these men, servants of the Most High God who proclaimed the way of salvation. And Satan was trying to weave his way into that and say that he has a part of that. Well, we see this today. We see the gospel message, the truth of the gospel that is perverted in some way through just a slight twisting and a lie so that it becomes not a gospel at all. I'll tell you the most common form of that in our modern day is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that says to people, that proclaims to people that if they just follow Jesus, if they believed enough, if they had enough faith, that Jesus comes to give you all of the health, wealth, and prosperity that you could ever want. And that's a lie from the enemy, but it's somewhat tickling to our ears, isn't it? To believe that God would want those things. And it it causes us to forget Jesus's words. And I'll just take one of them, take up your cross and follow me. Love, if you love someone, you're willing to lay down your life. The greatest love is the laying down of someone's life. It's not something where we get more, it's that we give our lives away. But the enemy thought here, I'll just kind of weave my way into this. I'll have some part of what Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke are doing. And Paul ultimately finally gets annoyed by it and says, get out of here and rebukes this demon in the name of Jesus Christ, which we see through this, the victory over spiritual darkness, the power of Jesus to give victory over spiritual darkness. He rebukes the darkness and rebukes the enemy, the demon in Jesus's name, which tells us something about what Jesus is doing. He has Pastor Matt prayed. His light is coming into the world in such a way that darkness will not stand against it and he will oppose it and he will drive it out. That's what Jesus does. And as we are invited into this story of taking territory for Jesus, as we faithfully speak the gospel and people come to faith in Jesus Christ and they're baptized and their lives are completely transformed as I told you mine was and so many of yours were, kingdom is expanding. And we see it historically As we've worked our way through this book of Acts, we've seen churches planted, lives transformed, and the geographic spread of that kingdom is growing and growing and growing to where we are today. And we still have an opportunity to do that. Well, of course, they have this victory over spiritual darkness, and then ultimately because of this, they face persecution, and we're going to see how they face this persecution and how Jesus, again, in establishing his kingdom, gives us victory even over persecution. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, basically when their money had run out, 
They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. Ultimately, what they say to the leaders of the city is, these Jews are doing stuff that is causing trouble for us. We don't like what they're doing. We want to stop. And they use, ultimately, they use their Jewishness, their race, as a means. There's some racism involved here. Notice that Timothy and, uh, uh, Timothy and Silas, excuse me, Timothy and Luke are not a part of this equation. Paul and Silas, the Jews of the four band of brothers, are the ones that are rounded up and the ones that are going to be beaten and thrown into prison. Timothy and, si- and Luke, or Timothy and Luke, I am able to speak today, I think. <laughs> Timothy and Luke. They're Greeks, and so they're not a part of this equation. And so they complain because they've lost their money. And ultimately, the leaders of the city, wanting to push them out, gather them up. The crowd joins in attacking them in verse 22, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them, tore the garments off of Paul and Silas, it says, and inflicted many blows upon them. And then they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, into the depths of the prison, which is ultimately a hole in the ground, into the depths of the prison and put them in stocks. So they face this great persecution that comes upon them for simply proclaiming the gospel. Some of us might feel as if sometimes we've tried to share the gospel. We have spoken the gospel and it's not gone our way. Well, my guess is, I hope that you feel as convicted as I do when I read this text. I've never been beaten, most likely nearly the point of my own death. I haven't been thrown into the stocks for proclaiming the gospel. I haven't faced this kind of persecution. And yet, so often, I still shrink back. And what we see in the way that Paul and Silas respond to this is a beautiful picture. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. One thing doesn't go my way, and I am typically going to be found, at least for a moment, pulling back, feeling sorry for myself, complaining, why did this happen to happen to me? And I'm saying that one thing, it's like when I stub my toe. These men have been beaten near to death, are thrown in prison, their feet are in stockades, and they're found to be worshiping Jesus, singing hymns to him. Again, that's convicting, friends singing hymns and praising Jesus in the midst of their persecution, which is a reminder to all of us. Yes, we speak the gospel, but as we live this out and are faithful and obedient to that calling, hard things might come. In fact, they more than likely will come for you, which is why Jesus said, you have to be willing to take up your cross and follow me because if they just killed me, they're gonna wanna kill you. The same is coming for us. And we can be found faithful in that as we continually worship Jesus and give thanks even in the midst of persecution. Well, that victory isn't just simply a spiritual victory in their hearts where they sense, okay, I feel I'm still worshiping God and I'm being obedient to God even while I'm in the stockades. There's actually then God begins to move and we see once again a similar pattern to what we saw with Lydia. Notice what happens. Verse 25, 
About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? A great earthquake occurs. God, of course, causes this earthquake to occur. And as this earthquake occurs, the life that this jailer thought he had basically is hanging in the balance because... He believes that as the shackles have fallen off all the prisoners, surely the prisoners will have fleed. And now because of this earthquake, he must take his own life. The honorable thing in that culture, rather than being found to have been derelict in his duty of containing the prison, it would be better for him to just kill himself. You can see his life is shaken to its foundation, both physically in the sense of the earthquake, but in a a more sort of literal sense also in his heart, in a spiritual sense, things are shaken to his core and he's about to take his own life. He's looking death in the face, and Paul says, don't do that. And that reaction, that causes him to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? You have something in your life that he sees. He saw the life of Paul and Silas so powerfully on display, their faith and their confidence and their hope in God after all that he had done to them. And he realized they know something that I don't know. They have a hope that I don't have. They have a salvation and a faith and a confidence in God that I don't have. What must I do? And here again, Paul and Silas speak. They said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Did you see the pattern? God moves an earthquake. God stirs up the reality of the jailer's heart where he finds himself completely wanting. He has no other hope in life. His heart is open and his ears are attentive, so much so that he takes action and asks, what do I need to do here? What can I do? God moves, hearts are open, ears are ready to hear, and they spoke just like happened with Lydia. There are people in our lives who are in the midst of an earthquake. Everything around their lives is shattered and crumbling and they are ready and believing that their lives are over. They are hopeless. They have nothing. Will we be people who are found in the midst of our challenges and the the pains that we suffer through to be singing and worshiping Jesus and trusting in Jesus so much so that as we live in relationship and in proximity to these people, that we are the people that they come to and say, what is it that you have? Can you tell me? And will you be ready to say, you need Jesus? Let me tell you the story of Jesus proclaiming the gospel. God is moving all around us, friends. If we are simply attentive to it, we might not feel the earthquakes, but we experience them when we live in relationship with others. And we see the hardships and the brokenness of life so much so that it just is tearing people apart. And we're saying, what's going on there? Can I give you some hope? Can I tell you something that is good news? And we speak the name of Jesus. Ben shared in his welcome to you this morning 
that I got the opportunity to teach the students on Wednesday. And this our student ministry is working its way through the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. So I'm teaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And as I'm talking with the students, and the story is the hope of Jesus' sure return and our invitation to be on mission with God and sharing the gospel. And so as I'm talking with them, I asked them this question. I said, hey, do you ever find Christianity boredom? Or bored? Do you find boredom in Christianity? Do you ever kind of just feel like your life is boring? I know that my sons very often for a long time in their life, hey, how's, how's it going? How was this? Happening? It was boring. Boring. Boring was a very common answer, still a common answer. But I asked them, as, you know, in your faith, in your life as a Christian, do you just find that boring? Is it just a list of things to do or things not to do? Do you kind of find that? And I said, don't nod your head. I knew they were all nodding on the inside. But I said, don't nod your head with me here. I don't want you to feel like I'm putting you on blast. Moms and dads, friends in the room, do you ever find that your faith, you feel like it's boring? Do you feel like there's not much to it? Do you feel like it's just sort of the kind of you're going through the motions? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that we are, as Ben said, to put on the breastplate of faith and love, to remember who we are and what Christ has done in our hearts, and to then put on the helmet of salvation, to know the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, and to go into the battle. Long, long time ago, a very, very long time ago, in a land far away, this young man joined the United States Marine Corps. And I did that because I saw a TV ad that says, the few, the proud, the Marines. And I said, I wanna be a part of that. The US government sent, spent millions of dollars to convince my heart to respond to that video, to respond to that commercial. But it stirred up something in me as a 20 year old man to say, I wanna be a part of something. My guess is that each and every one of us wants to be a part of something. You wanna be a part of the work of the kingdom. And God's word to you is get in the fight and in the battle of proclaiming the kingdom of God through telling people the hope of Jesus Christ. And that is not boring at all. If you're bored in your faith, it's because you're not living it out. Live it out. God is stirring up earthquakes all around us. And hearts are primed to hear, would we simply be people who speak? You don't have to have all the answers. Your story of what Jesus did in your life is, the, is enough. It's, it's, it's enough. Why? Because God's the one who saves. We simply are the messengers. It's not about me. It's not about you. You're shrinking back somewhat out of cowardice because you put too much significance in yourself. Paul says that he would count himself nothing for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. Consider yourself less. In humility, simply know God has done something in your life. He's invited you to proclaim that story to the world that desperately needs it. And we are all get to be a part of that. Look where God is moving. Trust that God will use you if you would simply speak the name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Help us to see where you're at work all around us. Help us to trust that you are giving ears to hear and hearts are open. And these dear saints in this room, would you give them boldness of faith to get in the battle, to proclaim your name? As we're about to sing, Jesus, we have nothing. We're, we're filthy rags. You have it all. So would you use us? We pray these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m., and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city, and the hope of the world. Oh, you say.